Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Saddleback Church is ordaining women to the pastorate. First Baptist Church Orlando is baptizing homosexuals. While America is trying to figure out what a woman is and the world is laughing and mocking them, the SBC is trying to figure out what a pastor is. Folks, this is what happens when you reject God's reality. Welcome back to The Reformed Rant. My name is Ed Dingus, and The Reformed Rant is a podcast where I rant about the theological, philosophical, and political issues taking shape in our society and in the churches, but I do so from a distinctly Reformed Christian perspective. And today, I am ranting about the idea, the concept, the theory that holds the churches of the SBC together. Is it biblical? Is it? Is the SBC, the concept of the SBC, a good idea? Is it a good idea? Could it be a good idea? With some caveats. Let's explore the fruit of this concept in light of Scripture and see if we can come up with an answer. There is a boogeyman in the closet, and the SBC has been uh, blissfully unaware of that boogeyman for a long time. So let's talk about the concept of the SBC and ask the question, is it a good idea? If your church were considering doing what conceptually the SBC does, would it be a good idea? For your church to play is it a a good way to do ministry is it a good way to reach the world is it a good way to carry out the great commission uh, of matthew 28 so the concept is simple Co cooperation of resources pulled together for the purpose of sending out missionaries and training pastors so here's the idea if a lot of churches get together that are like-minded churches, pool their money. One church might not be able to support a missionary, but if you get five churches together, they may be able to support a missionary abroad. You get 50 churches together, 100 churches together, you can do several missionaries and may be able to even build your own seminary, employ professors and train pastors and missionaries and others for the work of the ministry, right? That's the concept. Uh, now, the requirements to be an SBC church. What is an SBC church? I think there's four things listed. Missionally, the church must identify as an SBC church. Okay, that's easy enough. Cooperatively, the church affirms its willingness to cooperate with the purpose, processes, missions, and ministries of the convention. Okay. Third, 
doctrinally, must embrace the biblical faith and practice by which Southern Baptists have historically identified themselves. Now, that's pretty loose. That's really pretty loose. Um, if you were writing this and you really wanted a cooperating group of churches that are like-minded, you would not say something this nebulous. You would call out something very specific. You would reference a document, and then that document itself would be uh, very specific. Um, and as I understand it, the, the idea is that every participating Southern Baptist church is supposed to embrace the Baptist faith and message. They're supposed to. Uh, and if they don't, what are, what are the consequences? We'll talk a little bit about that as we go along. Number four, financially, they must give funds to help meet the convention's budget. All right, so let's get into the pros and cons and all the ins and outs of the concept behind the, uh, the SBC. All right, the pros. Sending missionaries to preach the gospel is a good thing. There is no question about that. Uh, the Great Commission is clear. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Make converts, teaching them everything that I have commanded you. Teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you and baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Who can argue with such a goal? That is a very worthy endeavor. That's a good thing. Second, building and funding seminaries to train pastors and missionaries along with others for the work of the ministry is also a very noble cause. I prefer that a seminary be attached to a church. Well, I don't just prefer this. I do prefer it, but I prefer it because I think this is the biblical model. I think churches ought to train pastors. Churches ought to train pastors. There should be a mechanism in place, a structure in place, a design in place that supports churches training their own pastors, whatever that looks like, rather than sending them off to some big giant brick and mortar institution where there are professors that the church does not know, is not familiar with, and turning over these young men to those professors to shape them and mold them because they will become mostly whatever those professors are. And if you don't know the professors, you are giving your young men to men that you do not know. And as it turns out, that's a problem. And it has been for a very long time. That's why I prefer a model of seminary where the church trains its own pastors, uh, if it were feasible, to oversee its own seminary. That financially probably isn't as feasible, but given our day and age, we certainly have the technology where we could make that happen. I'll give you an example of why. Uh, and I'll point to one of what we would consider to be one of the best conservative seminaries 
that we have in the world, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary with Al Mohler. Now, you know, Moeller um, was rocked in his ideology and his theology by the woke movement, by the social justice movement. Um, it pushed him around a little bit on what he thought was biblical and not biblical. Now, I think he has since regained his posture, and I respect him for that. But uh, we're talking about a seminary where Russell Fuller, a very, very, an outstanding, let's just an outstanding Hebrew professor, scholar, and a very godly man, gets fired when Moeller was being pushed around by these winds of the social justice movement, the woke cult, while at the same time employed still at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, we have Jarvis Williams, who is an outspoken critical race theory adherent, advocate, proponent, and he's outspoken on the idea. Now, he's been quiet recently. I don't know what that's about. Perhaps it's because Moeller has come to his senses, but I would submit to you that if Moeller really came to his senses in the right way, then Williams would be uh, involved in public repentance, a public recanting of his views. And if that's not going to happen, then Williams would be terminated. Neither of those things have happened. Williams has not publicly repented, and he has not been terminated. And so that would cause me to conclude that however it's being handled, it's not appropriate. And this is why sending your young men off to seminary can be a very dangerous and risky endeavor and and a bad idea. It can be a bad idea, and I think there's a better way. All right, those are the pros. Money pulled together for missionary work Money pulled together for seminary training. Let's talk a little bit about the cons. And we'll end up talking, I think, a lot about the cons. Let's start with the <clears throat> quality of missionaries. From my experience, missionaries, not just in the SBC, but in even evangelical churches, and this is just an observation. There are exceptions. So I don't mean this to be a blanket statement, but I've met and been around a lot of missionaries. And the overwhelming majority to me are about as shallow and ill-equipped to do real missionary work as they could be. I don't understand that. But it is a common occurrence. I have yet to chat with a missionary who also possessed a high aptitude for the branch of theology we call apologetics, for example. Well, maybe one, one or two in the dozens that I've met over the years. Now, additionally, why are we sending females out on the mission field to teach and preach the gospel? This has always been puzzling to me. We are opposed to female pastors. We are opposed to females teaching Men, we are opposed to females preaching the gospel. 
as, let's say, an evangelist, but we send them to the mission field. That's interesting. Why, why do we do that? Are these female missionaries engaging in teaching males in their respective locations? I suspect they are. Where is the oversight in that? Are we sending females to the mission field to violate 1 Timothy chapter 2 at the end of the day? I don't know. It feels like we are. And I would be willing to bet at a minimum that if you ask these guys this question and you ask them to verify whether or not that's happening, at a minimum they wouldn't be able to tell you whether or not that's happening. They don't know. They don't look, which means they don't care. The apathy around some of these issues that exist in the Southern Baptist Convention is outrageous. I recently asked a pastor on staff at an SBC church about the theology of worship and whether or not there was a, an outlined, documented process. First of all, a documented theology of worship. And second of all, from that theology of worship, documentation around what the process is for the kind of music we are going to allow in the gathering as we sing and give thanks and praise to God. And it the answer was it, it we don't have one. And of course, the next obvious question is, well, should you have one? Well, that it seems like one of the most reasonable things in the world that a church ought to have some documented process, statement, belief practice around what is permitted in the gathering in terms of congregational singing, right? Seems to me that that's pretty reasonable. doesn't exist. This is the same kind of thing. Missionaries, female missionaries going out on the field, what are they doing? And who is, who is looking at what they are doing? Are we ensuring that they are walking in absolute obedience to Scripture. Are we sending female missionaries out who are basically going to these countries that do not have the gospel and they're, they're uh, acquiring, let's say, teaching jobs, nursing jobs, other types of jobs, and in their jobs, they're being a light. They're having conversations about the gospel with people they work with. What are they doing exactly? on the mission field. Second, the second issue here is the political manipulation that seems to be involved in missions and church plants as a general practice. And we look no further than the North American Mission Board and Orlando First Baptist Church, for example, and the relationship between those two. Now, Orlando First Baptist, or First Baptist Orlando, um, is baptizing homosexuals openly. When the 
uh, nightclub shooting took place down there in the gay nightclub, which I would venture to say if most of you, even those of you who are very, let's just say, accommodating or what you might call kind or nice when it comes to the practice of practice of homosexual sex, if you were to go into that nightclub or most gay nightclubs and observe what takes place in these places, you, you would, you probably would have trouble keeping your lunch down. The, the, the sexual deviance that exists in the homosexual community is off the charts. I'm not going to get into details. I'm just going to tell you that it is off the charts. And the First Baptist Church Orlando actually participated, held a, um, a, a ceremony, a service, a memorial service, uh, specifically targeting the uh, gay community after that shooting. Now, surprise, surprise, that same church is baptizing homosexuals. I mean, predictable. Absolutely predictable. Now, I want to I play a clip for you regarding the relationship between the North American Mission Board and Orlando First Baptist Church um, from... Uh, Oh, let's see. Let me run over here and see if I can find it. All right, now this is a clip from Casey Butner and Justin Peters talking about uh, what's going on at First Baptist Church Orlando. And I would point you to their YouTube discussion on First Baptist Church Orlando baptizing homosexual homosexuals. It's a couple of hours long. Um, and look, I, I, I don't listen to things that are a couple hours long uh, just because I, I don't have the time. But I have to say, I listened to all of this. I didn't speed it up. I listened to it uh, two hours. And it's, it's shocking. Uh, but very, very well done. And you would be well served to listen to this and pay attention to what is going on. So here it is. So one of the other things that happened at First Baptist Orlando uh, some time ago, the North American Mission Board, NAM, brought in a uh, prior church planter whose name is Matt, who's on staff at First Baptist Woodstock to speak to pastors here in Central Florida. So First Baptist Orlando hosted that luncheon. And um, he came in as a guest speaker and obviously knew David and Danny. They were sitting up front, our table was close to them. And to my utter surprise, right there in the middle of the message, he dropped a four letter bomb. I had not looked around I thought, is anybody else appalled? <laughs> David and Danny were laughing. The pastor beside of me was not happy about it, and it seemed like, well, hold on, guys. 
the North American Mission Board, First Baptist Orlando, has a pastor on stage who's swearing. Uh, now, this is just indicative of the casual attitude that exists in our uh, churches, and it is deplorable. So the idea is that North American Mission Board is partnering with Orlando First Baptist, First Baptist Orlando, however the Southern Baptists <laughs> say it, um, in order to plant like-minded churches in Florida. In other words, Orlando First Baptist laughing at a man on stage, a preacher on stage, using a dropping a, a, a four-letter bomb and baptizing homosexuals. Churches like that. Okay, so that's a real, that's a, a real con. That's a real problem when it comes to the quality of missions in the Southern Baptist Convention. And I'm not even scratching the surface. I have, I don't, I have no interest in getting into the, the corruption and controversy that's going on around the North American Mission Board. I quite honestly tune that stuff out because it's, it's disheartening, depressing, and disgusting. I know that it exists, it's out there, and that's enough for me. All right, quality of seminary training. At least two things go into quality when it comes to a seminary education. The first one is training faithful to biblical doctrine and praxis, faithful to the text, faithful to scripture. That's the first sine qua non of a quality seminary education. And of course, second would be the, st the, the strategy, the tactics, the content of the actual training itself. So when we look at our young pastors that are being that are coming out of these seminaries, not all, but the overwhelming majority of them are coming out of the seminaries ill-equipped to do the work of equipping that a pastor is called to do. Just like the universities in the world, in the pagan culture, education is being replaced by brainwashing and unbiblical philosophy in the seminaries. Wokeness, social justice, the ideas of justice and mercy that are taken not from the text of Scripture, but from modern pagan definitions and ideas. It isn't the biblical text that is informing our definition of these things. It's philosophies, pagan philosophies, that are driven out from thinking and people who utterly hate God and we're permitting it. So the seminary training isn't any better 
than the quality of the missions work that's going on in the overwhelming majority of schools in the SBC, with maybe one exception, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. But even Southern Baptist Theological Seminary has its issues. We have, we have Al Mohler, who, who seems to have, let's just say, come to his senses, and he's standing, once again, standing firm. But I have not seen, and I've said this earlier, I have not seen the I have not seen a new disposition regarding Jarvis Williams and his CRT advocacy. He is clearly a CRT proponent, has been, is on record of being that, has taught it, has preached it, has lectured on it, has written about it, did so for years. Okay? Now, if Jarvis Williams repented, recanted. Great. That's fantastic news. Um, he would have to address, I don't know if his commentary on Galatians was ever published or not. I've looked for that thing. I can't find it. You would think that someone who published a commentary on Galatians would be, you would be able to find it. I can't find it. So anyhow, Williams uh, should publicly go on record and repent. And until he does that, he's guilty. It's like the Matthew Hall nonsense where he said he was a racist. I was told he repented for, of that position publicly. And the truth of the matter is, I read what was supposed to be the repentance. What was supposed to be his repentance? There was no repentance in that post. None. Now, here's a guy, one of these young guys running around criticizing and judging or at least making room for judgment on the Puritans and men like George Whitfield because they own slaved slaves. Mm. Matt Hall couldn't tie or buckle George Whitfield's shoe. Couldn't buckle it. I mean, he is, he doesn't even show up on the map that George Whitfield shows up on, completely in a different category. George Whitfield was, was a towering, godly saint of a preacher that we would call into question his commitment and faithfulness to Christianity because of the modern idea, the modern morality regarding slavery that's being driven out by men who hate God is absolutely unthinkable, unconscionable. And when pastors saw that, a good pastor with godly integrity would repudiate it, even if it's from your best friend. Now, I don't want to get too worked up. I don't want to get too worked up. Even if it's from your best friend. I've had very, very good friends over the years who took a turn into heresy. And guess what happened? We confronted them and were no longer friends, right? I was talking to somebody not long ago about an issue and they referred to this person and this issue was, was about this person. And the response I got from this pastor on staff was, well, he's my boy. Mm. 
He's my boy. Do you know who my boy is? My boy is God's truth. That's who my boy is. And anyone, anyone who disrespects God's truth, who compromises God's truth, who ignores God's truth, who perverts God's truth, who corrupts God's truth, becomes a problem for me and I become a problem for them. I don't have friends in, in my circle of friends who can do whatever they want regarding God's truth and remain in my circle of friends. And I am shocked that we have pastors and people in the Christian community where that is the case. It's another problem in the SBC. It isn't the politics. It isn't just the politics in the leadership of the organization or the convention itself. It's, the, it's also the politics that, that go on in the local church. This is my buddy. My buddy can do no wrong. There's no accountability. And if you attack my buddy in the name of accountability because my buddy did something that you think is wrong, then regardless of whether or not your point's valid, you suffer the consequences. This is what goes on in the local church. Now, let's talk about the unifying principle of the Southern Baptist Convention. How strong is the unifying principle of the cooperation itself? If the, if the cooperating churches are not unified in the truths of Scripture, how can we ensure that we are sending out quality missionaries and managing quality seminaries? I'm going to ask that question again. If the cooperating churches are not unified in the truths of Scripture, how can we ensure that we are sending out quality missionaries and managing quality seminaries? If we can't agree on what is the truth of Scripture, where are the controls and what controls the missionaries and the seminaries? The criteria that we use to say that this Missionary is qualified, and this seminary is qualified to teach our young men to be pastors. I think this is a very fair question, and I think it puts the finger on the problems we see with the SBC. Unless the cooperating churches are unified around sola scriptura and the idea that Scripture interprets Scripture, there will be no true unity at all. The only authoritative interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. This is... What makes us Protestant? And here we are coming back around to the idea that there, if you listen to some of these arguments that people make, you end up with no authoritative interpretation of Scripture. And when you land there, you no longer have an authoritative Scripture. It, it is beyond me that we have people leading churches who are making arguments just like this and they are absolutely clueless, clueless as to the destruction that they are inflicting on Christianity by destroying any authoritative interpre interpretation of Scripture. If you have no authoritative interpretation of Scripture, then you have no authoritative definition of what Christianity is. And if you have no authoritative definition of what Christianity actually is, you have just destroyed Christianity. That is 
logically irresistible. You can shrug your shoulders and come up with all kinds of rhetoric and emotive responses all day long. If you can't make an argument refuting this that's logically coherent and biblically faithful, you should just shut your mouth. Don't mean to be so harsh. Try to stop just shy of being as harsh as the prophets and the apostles and even our Lord. There are two ways to bring down a conservative group. Take a clear position that Scripture isn't our final authority on all matters. That's one way. Or embrace a hermeneutic that results in the same, pra in pra in the same practice in the end. Either way, something else displaces Scripture. And when that happens, whatever unity you end up with, you can bet it won't be faithful to God. No questions asked. That's a fact. So we have a problem with the unifying principle. We have a problem with the quality of missionaries. We have a, a problem with the quality of seminary training. We also have a confused mission. SBC churches, for the most part, take a seeker approach to evangelism and church growth. A seeker approach. This is Rick Warren's purpose-driven church. A seeker-sensitive model. It is filled with problems, not the least of which there are no seekers. <laughs> Second, the woke movement has overtaken the Great Commission. Social justice, social issues, social causes, everything that is going on in our woke American society is leaching into the churches because there is no fence between the world and the church where the SBC is concerned. We bring them in by the boatloads. We bring in unbelieving pagans who say they love Jesus but don't by the boatloads. We're baptizing them. They're becoming members. We're putting them in charge of Sunday school classes. We're sending them off to seminary to become pastors. And we're sending them to the mission field and they don't know Jesus Christ. They have no idea what the gospel is. They have not repented and believed the gospel. That's a fact. It's indisputable. It's undeniable. Look at where we are. Third, most large SBC churches are too distracted by repenting for being white and privileged to actually talk about true repentance of actual sin in the congregation. You have people in our congregations who are running around, cheating on their wives, lying, partying on weekends, getting drunk, even using drugs, watching porn on a, reg not on a regular basis. This makes up their life. Sin defines them. And they're repenting for being white and privileged, and they feel good about it. While all these other things continue to dominate their lives. And we are too afraid to do anything about it, to address it, to really hit it like it needs to be hit. It's unkind to do that. It's mean. I mean, hey, we can't, it's mean to tell people they're going to hell. This is where we're at, folks. 
It's mean. That's mean. You can't just tell people they're going to hell. You have to be winsome in your evangelism. You can't confront them with the gospel. You can't tell a homosexuality that, that this is abomination in the eyes of God and that it's unnatural sexual behavior that is perverse. You can't do that. That's unloving. It's unkind. You can't point out the issues, the true issues, that are hurting some folks in both the black community, the Asian community, the white community. You can't talk about those things because if you isolate them and talk about them, the values that some of these people adopt and embrace, which, are, which end up hurting themselves more than anything in the world, adopting attitudes like liberation theology. You, if you start talking about things like that, oh, you're just a racist, you're unloving. If you point out the sheer emotivism that exists in some of these churches, in some of these people groups, some of the drivers that they think are really what church is all about, and you start to address these as issues and a lack of theology, you're just not being very helpful. You're being unkind, not loving. It is the fear of man, Ely, that's driving this rather than the fear of God. All these things are symptoms of a problem, and the problem is an utter lack of the fear of God. And the reason there's an utter lack of the fear of God is because our churches have so many pagans in them. Our leadership in the SBC has pagans in it. Number four, in many of the in in many if not most of the SBC churches, the goal is to make society a better place, to usher in some sort of social or Marxist utopian state in the name of Christian love. That's what Jesus would do, even though Jesus didn't do that when he was here. He didn't even try to do it, but that's what Jesus would do if he were here now. He didn't do it when he was here before. You can't find anywhere in Jesus' walk where he tried to usher in some sort of utopian state in Palestine, in Israel. You can't find anywhere in the writings of the apostles where they address churches on the, the inequalities going on in the Roman Empire. Nowhere can you find this. Yet, we think that's what the New Testament and Jesus was all about. And fifth, the, ERC, the ERLC in its confused and, unbi and unbiblical role plays right into this. The Christian church is not called to focus on making society a better place. The Christian church remains in this earth to take the gospel to all creatures, to preach the gospel of repentance, and to baptize converts, to, di to disciple them, to make followers of Christ. Next, there is no true biblical ecclesiology in the SBC. Little to no vetting of new members coming into the churches. These new members are eventually the folks we are sending off to seminary in the mission field. These are our future pastors and missionaries. Go figure. We've been doing this for a long time so that a bunch of those folks are now sitting in the pastorate. They're on staff at churches and they don't know Christ. Second, 
the complete abandonment of church discipline as prescribed and commanded in Matthew 18. You don't have a right as a pastor to ignore what Jesus taught in Matthew 18. I don't care if you feel like it embarrasses people or that your church wouldn't understand. That's your fault that they wouldn't understand. That's your fault. Teach them. Oh, no. No, we're not going to do that. And subsequently, we're not going to exercise church discipline because people don't understand. Well, if they don't understand, then it's your job to teach them to understand, to help them understand what the church is and is not. And you're not doing that. And, and you're using the situation, the very situation you're creating and extending, you're using that as an excuse not to do your job. You don't have an option. This is not your church. This church belongs to Jesus. And Jesus said, you do it this way. Choosing not to do it that way will uh, put you in a situation in the end where you're going to have to answer some questions that are going to make you very uncomfortable. This is true on the local level in the local churches. It's also true of churches who repudiate the Baptist faith and message in their action by doing things like ordaining females to the pastorate and baptizing homosexuals. And not only that, these churches that are now springing up everywhere embracing the view that the doctrine of original sin is not biblical. This is also true of our seminaries that employ professors who advocate for ungodly ideas like CRT, who reject the doctrine of original sin and things of this nature that are basic to Christianity. Equipping in these churches is limited to checking a box at the most superficial levels. We do not slow down in our teaching, and when we're training people, we do not pull people into discussions. We are not engaging them. We are not dealing with critical issues. We are not asking them to think critically and biblically. We're running through these things as fast as we possibly can at the highest level because we are deathly afraid that somebody's going to get offended. Discipleship is virtually non-existent. Virtually non-existent. We do things that we call discipleship. It's not discipleship checking the box. Our churches are not elder-ruled, and many of them, if not most of them, are extremely resistant to the idea of elder rule. Sorry. Teach them better, pastors. No, can't do that. Somebody might get offended. They might leave. Megachurch pastors have no idea who is in their congregation. They have no idea who their teachers are, not really. What those teachers believe how those teachers are living, and what those teachers are teaching. For the most part, they don't know. And you know what else? As long as there are butts in those seats, they don't care that much. As long as there are butts in the seats that represent an income stream coming in to pay the bills, they don't care quite so much what those teachers are teaching. Females are now being ordained in the churches as pastors. Saddleback Church, ordaining three women as pastors. And rather than deal with this blatant disobedience to God's word and violation of the Baptist faith and, faith and message, the convention has decided that it would be more prudent to study the definition of what a pastor is, taking its cue, of course, from the world as they try to figure out what it means to be a woman. It's embarrassing. It's utterly embarrassing. Women are preaching in the pulpits and teaching mixed groups 
all over the SBC. And if, even in churches where you don't have women being ordained to the pastorate, you have women teaching men in Sunday school. It is no different. Still violating God's order and God's command. You can't treat it any differently because it's, it violates the same God who said the same thing. We like, to, we like to treat these things differently because we like to distinguish between teaching a Sunday school class and ordaining a woman to the pastorate. The same God who said that a woman could not sit in a position of authority over men said that a woman cannot teach men. The same God. And he said it just as clearly. He said both things about as clearly as they could be said. Who are you to make a difference between the one thing God said and the other thing God said? That's what I want to know. You explain that to me. Who gave you this authority to reject some of what God clearly mandates and to accept some of what God clearly mandates? Yeah, it's a problem. And then, of course, I'll say it again, Orlando, First Baptist, baptizing open homosexuals. What are the common traits that we see in these SBC churches as a result of this loose unity, so-called? There are churches, and of course there are exceptions, there are good churches who have solid pastors. There are good SBC churches that exist. Solid. They're out there. Solid pastors, godly men, but they're in a minority. Right? The common themes that we see are attractional evangelism and, and, a, and a man-centered gospel. Man-centered, emotive, charismatic-styled worship. Children are entertained and worship is turned into games and, to, and, to, and fun. These children grow up to become adults who think that Sunday morning is really about them, making them feel better, making them feel good, entertaining them. They carry that into adulthood, and that's what they expect on Sunday mornings in the, in the gathering when we're singing and preaching. They want to hear jokes from the pulpit stories, and they want music that's going to release those endorphins. There is an addiction in this country to endorphins. It is out of control. One of the most common triggers for endorphins is music. The more emotive it is, the more endorphins you release. Modern evangelicals confuse emotions and endorphins for the presence of God. They get this from the Pentecostals. They think you can feel the presence of God. They think their endorphins is really the Holy Spirit moving. It's utterly embarrassing. It is ridiculous. It is ignorant. It is outrageous. It is scandalous. Your emotions, getting excited over a song that you like, is not the Holy Spirit moving. It's you and your emotions. I would challenge any pastor, you, you come talk to me about feeling or sensing the presence of God, and you tell me how you know that that thing that you're feeling, that experience that you've got going on, Tell me how you know that that's the presence of God or the Holy Spirit. There isn't a shred of evidence in the Bible that such a thing ever happened to anyone in the text. Ever. This idea of I can feel the presence of God is nowhere taught in Scripture 
or given an example in Scripture where we can point to it and say, there it is, there, it happened right there. Nope, it doesn't exist. And we have, we have embraced this idea, we've imported it into the churches, and it's become so common that everybody thinks that when they get chill bumps, it's the presence of God. So much so now that, that you have worship pastors who think that if they sing just the right songs and create these endorphin releases that they think and mistake are the presence of God, that they're actually doing something for the people. I'm ministering to them. Look, they're feeling the presence of God. The Holy Spirit is moving. God is doing something. It's outrageous. It's utterly ridiculous. Your emotions as a Christian should be in direct response to biblical truth. And you should own them. These are my emotions. If I tear up at a song, it is because the Word of God in that song is in my mind. And I'm thinking about the deep truths of God's Word. And as a result, I'm having an emotional response to it. It's not God doing something in me. It's my emotions. It's me. right? My emotions in that case happen to be good and right because they are subject to Sound, solid theology. Truth. But the truth of the matter is, I can get excited over a song that is uh, clearly taken from Scripture, expressing the truths of God in the right way, without any regard for music, beat, anything like this. And another person could get the very same experience singing outright heresy. To them, they believe it's the presence of God. They have no evidence for it, but they believe that. This kind of thinking in our churches has to be addressed. But we are deathly afraid to deal with this because if, if you're not entertaining people, remember, we teach them from a kid that this is what church is all about. You come, it's fun and games, it's entertainment, you feel good, you leave feeling good, you had a blast, and they carry that right into adulthood. And we do very little to change it. They go into college, and they got this massive thing called the passion. They have these churches like Elevation, rock concerts, light shows, smoke machines, and the works. That's what it turns into. It does not turn into solid, biblically faithful gatherings where people sing from the heart the truths of God's Word and understand that their emotional responses are their own and that church is not about making them feel good. It's about them gathering together to grow in the faith, to grow in Christ, and to sing songs of thanksgiving to God to sing aloud the truths of who God is and what He has done. SBC churches in general create a worship experience that is aimed at releasing endorphins. And this keeps people coming back for their weekly fix. Once you, once you get them hooked, you got to keep them hooked. You know what the addict does if they run out of drugs. They're going to find somebody else to get them their fix. They're loyal 
to the endorphin. That's a problem. Shallow programs focus more on entertainment than equipping young kids right up through college. And we, when those kids become thinkers or confronted with someone who's a thinker or by someone who is a thinker, they wilt, they collapse, they fall apart. Because their entire life has been, a, church has been about entertaining them, making them feel good, fun and games, endorphins, an emotional state, and very little critical thinking, if any. And then you have Sunday schools that elevate relationships and fellowship over teaching. They give more time to eating donuts and food and chit-chatting about nothing than they do about equipping the saints. We do this even today, even in good churches. We have a crisis on our hands, and we're giving more time to fellowship than we are to equipping. Shallow teaching everywhere. Where teaching is present at all, it is shallow. Superficial relationships that are not grounded in a burning love or loyalty for or to the truth. That's what we produce. I know. I've, I've been in, in some groups where no one wants to talk about Scripture. No one wants a Bible study. No one wants to talk about issues. They want to go no further than the most superficial of subjects and stay there. It's sad. And then number seven, it's a politically toxic environment. There are those who are in the inner circle in your local churches. You'd better not cross them because if you do, it's probably better for you to just find another place to serve because you won't be serving there in any meaningful way. Once you cross them, you're on the list. And it doesn't matter how much you love the truth, how much you love God, how faithful you are, how loyal you are to the truth. That doesn't matter. You're on the list. You have committed the unpardonable sin. And it's the end of the story. It's sad. It really is sad. The conclusion then is, is, is this. It is a good idea. Is it a good idea? Is it a good idea? Is it a good idea for a good church to take money from its saints, co-mingle those funds with bad churches who are not united with you on such basic things as sola scriptura, the perspicuity of scripture, sufficiency of scripture, God's design for leadership, even the basics of the gospel? Is that a good idea? We have pastors, professors, and churches in the ESBC that are now denying the doctrine of original sin. A lot of them. You want to take your money and mix it with theirs and allow them to influence the kind of seminaries we have, the kind of seminary training we have, the kind of missionaries that we send out. You, you think that's a good idea? If you do, I'm going to tell you, you are participating. You are sending out missionaries in those cases that are influenced by this nonsense to preach a false gospel. And you're using money from your people to do it. Can you trust who they're sending out. If the SBC is no longer a cooperative program of churches that has truth as its unifying principle, both affirming and practicing that truth in confession and in praxis, then the idea of cooperation is very bad. It's a very bad idea.
Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, God says to the church at Ephesus, Therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Just a few verses later in Revelation chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, God says, Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember that you have received and heard. Remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. And then we have 2 Corinthians 6.14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What is really interesting is that if you were to quote this verse, read this verse, study this verse with the overwhelming majority of people who profess Christ in the SBC, they would have no idea how it applies to them today because we spend so much time partnering with lawlessness, fellowshipping with darkness, having all kinds of things in common with unbelievers that we would read this. It would be foreign to us. The message then, the answer, I think, to the question, the answer is it's a bad idea to commingle your money with other churches that do not agree with you on basic Christian doctrine and praxis who have the ability to influence the criteria for missionaries and for seminary training. It's a bad idea. So the message is don't do it. Don't give them any money. And eventually, you're going to have to ask the question, do you still want to call yourself SBC, given the fact that the SBC is developing a reputation for being just one more liberal Protestant church? Your call. Thank you for listening. I hope I've said something that's made you think that's uh, uh, been maybe encouraging, enlightening, stimulating. Um, it's a tough, it's a tough, tough time that we, we live in. Uh, but it, it was tougher for New Testament Christians, and it's been tougher for many, many Christians throughout church history in the world. And to be frank, it's been tougher for many, many Christians throughout the world all along in other parts of the world, even in modern times. We're not used to it. And so it's tougher for us as we, as we try to adjust to what is becoming an extremely hostile society to live in where Christianity is concerned. Let's keep the faith. Let's continue to fight the good fight. Let's continue to walk in the joy of the Lord despite what's going on. And if you find yourself in a church, do everything you can to stand firm for the truth, to love them with the truth, to fight the good fight of faith, and to hold each other accountable. Love each other by doing those things. Amen.
This podcast is part of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. Biblical Christianity's marketplace of ideas. BibleThumpingWingnut.com Saying I was here first, this is my piece of dirt, and you're rambling, don't rattle. 